We are a band of brothers, diverse yet unified, aligned to pursue the truth, resolute in our commitment. We are stronger together, and you are one of us. This is the Brotherhood Podcast. Brothers, welcome to the podcast. Today we get to tune in and listen to our Brotherhood Summit keynote from Pastor Whit George. This was on Friday night, and this was the very first session that we had. Uh, Real excited to share this with you guys. Stay tuned. We will have uh, more and more Summit content that we'll be releasing uh, over the next couple of weeks. But let's tune in and listen to Pastor Whit's message to the Brotherhood. Did John's story bless you as much as it did me? My goodness, that just, that was, that was everything tonight. Thank you, John. Thank you for being brave enough and courageous enough to share your journey with us. That was amazing. Hey, uh, before we jump in, first of all, I just want to echo what Lee said. It's taken a lot of work to get this whole thing put together. A lot of guys put a lot of time in, a lot of teams to kind of get to the place that we're at. And I just think we ought to honor them tonight. One more time, could we just put our hands together and thank Johnny, Mark, the team, Lee. Everybody's worked really hard to make this happen. Hey, before I I jump in, I want to make you aware of just a couple of resources that uh, I I think especially for men are, are, and this is nothing that I'm trying to sell you, just a couple of ministries. Obviously, one one of them, maybe both of them, you'll know, but maybe certain aspects of what I'm going to share with you, you don't know. First of all, if you hadn't heard, my dad... Our founding pastor, Willie George, just recently launched a podcast and a whole ministry page called My Faith Roots. And if you've not subscribed to this, I would love for you to do it. I'm telling you, my dad might be the best Bible teacher I've ever been around. He's incredible. And he's sharing daily, a daily word with you on Instagram, YouTube. So you can find his YouTube channel. If you just go to myfaithroots.com, you can sign up. There's a daily email that goes along with it. But this will bless you. You want to talk about, guys, let me just tell you something. I, I get to travel around a lot. I get to be with a lot of churches and a lot of pastors. And one of the things when you're in ministry circles, you hear stories of guys not finishing well. Unfortunately, it's more common than it is uncommon these days. And to go 30 years at one church to serve faithfully with not even a hint or a shred of a shadow on his legacy, but to be faithful and a man of, not perfect, but a man of integrity the entire time, that only comes because you're connected to Jesus. And I'm not just saying that because he's my dad. I'm saying that because it's the truth. So this will bless you. So I would love for you to sign up for this. And then, and then another thing that's so cool, um, man, one of, I think, one of the most amazing miracles God's done in my life um, is to restore an older brother to me that just means so much in ministry. Um, for those of you who don't know, years ago, gosh, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Well, I'll just put it like this. Blaine Bartell was my youth pastor, and I see Blaine sitting back up here. And uh, we, you know, we built this building together. Me and Blaine and my dad, I mean, we we put this whole thing together and it it was amazing. There was an incredible ministry season. But for those of you that don't know the story behind all of that, Blaine was battling a deep sex addiction. And uh, when the whole thing came out, it just kind of blew everything up, blew Blaine's life up, fractured relationships. We lost touch for a considerable season. And one of the most amazing things is how God has resurrected our relationship because God, Jesus resurrected Blaine. His story is incredible. You're gonna get to hear it tomorrow. But I am on the warpath against porn and lust taking down our men. And so we sowed a seed into Blaine's ministry uh, maybe a year ago, was it, Blaine? $10,000 to say, Blaine, we want to help you put a curriculum together because Blaine has walked out of sex addiction. But not only has he walked out, he's now pulling other guys out of the pit of porn addiction. And it's been incredible to watch. He's ministered to me in my own life, and it's just been amazing. And so he wrote a curriculum that that it's going to go beyond Church on the Move, but it, it starts at Church on the Move. It's called Catharos. 
And um, this is tailor-made for men to get free from porn addiction. He's going to be sharing more of his story tomorrow. You can jump. I highly encourage you. And let's just, let's just kind of take the stigma off of this right here, right now, guys. This is an issue that plagues just about every guy in this place in some form or another. So let's just not make it weird. If you walk by and see a brother in Blaine's session, it doesn't mean, oh God, I didn't know Rob had a porn addiction. Let's, let's start praying for him, right? Like that's not what that means. It could be a lot of different things, a son, a brother, whatever. Like there's, we, we just need to get cool talking about this. So he's gonna do a workshop tomorrow, but we're launching, and I'm, and I'm so excited about this. We told you about this. We're launching a, is it a mid-sized group, Lee? Is that what it is? Okay, so we're, we're starting a mid-sized group this Wednesday, May 5th, 7 to 8.30 p.m. It's a Catharos group, and uh, I'm excited about this. I'm looking forward to what this is going to mean in our church. I'm looking forward to, forward to marriages that will be saved. I, here's, what, here's what's cool. Think about the preventative work that we could do. Maybe you're in a spot where you're going, I, I don't really terribly struggle with this. Maybe, maybe there's just a, a little bit of an issue. I, I would say jump into this. Do it boldly because to be completely free of this, I, I'm telling you, that this is the kind of thing that crops back up, keeps showing up. And how many of you have found that the porn industry is aggressively seeking you? You don't have to go looking for it. It finds you. Come on, somebody at the bottom of the ESPN page. You know what I'm talking about? Those little ads on, the, on your websites that you go to, they know what they're doing. The YouTube avatars or the little thumbnails, they know what they're doing. They're looking for you. Anybody been getting the text messages, just random text from, from, from whoever, group text or whatever, filthy stuff. It's seeking you out. And I, I want us to be uh, just a brotherhood of guys going, no more. Not in our community, not in this house. And, and if, if we can be free, and maybe some of you go, man, this isn't really my problem, but I'm going to go through this because I want to be a mentor. I want to be equipped for other men that are walking through this, for kids, young people that are walking through this. Guys, I mean, this is hitting at, at where, where was John? How old were you, John? I see you back over here. How old were you when you were driving that truck? Twelve. Twelve. Guys, that's a lot of our stories around that age. So what if we just jump in this and say, hey, let, let, let's do something about this. So this starts this Wednesday uh, at seven o'clock and I, I hope that you'll be a part of it. I'm, I'm super excited for this. All right, if you have a Bible or a phone and you wanna follow along, we're gonna be looking at Acts chapter four tonight. And uh, actually the story that I wanna share out of and that the Lord has really directed me to is actually out of chapters three and four. I'll give you the setup. Um, Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. And it says that while they're on their way, there's another man on his way. He's a man lame from birth. He's being carried there. We later find out in the story that he's been like this for 40 years of his life. Being carried to the temple and basically his daily existence was to sit outside the temple gate called Beautiful and beg to rely on, to live on the mercy of others that would pass by him. And so it says that while Peter and John were on their way, they passed this guy, and this guy's just kind of, you know, sort of like randomly just, just, just begging, not really specifically connecting with people, just begging, asking for anyone's mercy and generosity. And it says that Peter and John fixed their eyes on him. And then they, they, they caught him and they said, hey, look at us. And Peter said, look, I don't have any money to give you. Silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give to you. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Grabs the guy by the right hand, lifts him up. And for the first time, I want you to imagine this. 40 years you've been living this way. 40 years unable to move on your own. 40 years having to rely on other people. And all of a sudden, in a moment, a creative miracle of God strengthens this man's legs. He stands to his feet. And as you can imagine, as you and I would do, he goes nuts. He starts running around, yelling, screaming, praising God. And as it does, it draws a crowd. People are going, what's going on? And so you can imagine all these people who have also gone up to the temple to pray, they just walk by this guy. 
Maybe they've seen him dozens and dozens of times before. Maybe he's become one of the many invisible people that you just pass by every day, that you just kind of, you see him regularly, but they're just kind of in this spot. It's just always the same thing. And all of a sudden you see him in a whole new way. This guy's running around and people are amazed at the miracle that has just happened. And so Peter takes the occasion to begin to preach the gospel. He tells them, guys, this isn't us. Like, like John and I did not do this. This was Jesus of Nazareth. And then he boldly turns around and he goes, who you crucified? He says, repent, give your lives to Jesus. Well, it's incredible. Thousands of people start to come to Christ right there on the spot. And as it does, it makes the religious authorities Upset, because you can imagine, right? They just crucified, like this isn't long after the resurrection. So they just put Jesus down, and now there's another commotion rising up. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at verse, uh, let's see, we're going to look at chapter 4 and beginning in verse, what do I got here? I can barely see anything anymore. Five? I don't know. Put it up on the screen for me. I can't read the little part. There it is, five. Okay. Okay. We'll look at 5 through 13. No joke. This has just happened. Like, i got to go to the doctor and get some. Anybody an optometrist in here? I might need a, need a, a, a whatever it is, an exam after this. All right. The next day. Anybody want to perform a miracle on me at the moment? The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all the power players, all the other men of the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. They asked them, by what power or by what authority did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. Where did I lose my place? Then know this. Come on. There it is. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, love this, who you crucified but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which men must be saved. When they saw the courage, another translation says boldness, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled Ordinary men, they were astonished. And here's the phrase I really wanted to get to. The whole sermon builds to this point right here. And they took note that they had been with Jesus. Let me pray tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word that you've put in me. Lord, I know you spoke this to me. And I've been wrestling to get this out for the last four or five days. Father, I pray that tonight the word that you've put in me would be clear to these brothers. Help me, O oh Lord, to be present as I speak right here in this moment and this time with these men right here, right now. Holy Spirit, go beyond my words. Say what you need to say in the hearts of the men present here tonight. Lord Jesus, be lifted up. We want to see you. We want to experience you, and above all, we want to be with you. I pray your presence would be manifest and felt tonight in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Chicago. More specifically, I was in Wheaton, Illinois. For those of you who don't know, I'm pursuing a master's degree right now through Wheaton College, and so some of the weekends that maybe I'm not around or you don't see me, it's because either one, I'm writing a paper and I can't concentrate on anything else other than that, or two, uh, I'm actually out of town studying and in a study group. So I'm in a group of, of pastors, about 12 guys in a private cohort that they put together of pastors of larger churches around the country. It's, I mean, it's been an amazing blessing. I've got to, one, build some amazing relationships with other brothers and pastors who are doing great work all around the, uh, the, the, the country, but also got to learn from some incredible leaders 
And so this week we were going to study the Old Testament. Actually, this whole semester we've been studying the Old Testament. And this week we were going to study Psalms and Isaiah with a guy by the name of Dr. Ray Ortland. Now that name probably doesn't mean anything to most of you, but to me it was a big deal. Because see, I got several of Dr. Ortland's books on my shelf at home. I've read him before. He wrote a commentary on the book of Proverbs. He wrote a commentary on the book of Isaiah. An incredible pastor, theologian, thinker, just a brilliant guy. Has led an amazing pastoral career. And to be honest with you, I was intimidated. Maybe I could say even quite intimidated to go and sit in a small group with this man and study Psalms and Isaiah. I, I, I was supposed to read through both of those books before I got there. I'm listening, trying to get it all done amidst everything else that I'm doing. And I was listening through the book of Isaiah and I'm listening to it. I'd read Isaiah many times before, but I'm listening through it and I'm like, I don't even know what this means. I, am I gonna be exposed for a fraud when I get there? I'm trying, you know, I don't have time to dig into the to the text and really figure out what's being said in Isaiah, and it's not exactly the easiest book to make complete sense of. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm nervous going into this thing, like, what's this going to be like? Here's this guy. I mean, the ESV study Bible that I have, I found out that he wrote part of the commentary that's in my Bible. This is the guy we're going to study the scriptures with. And I'm thinking, oh my Lord, I, I, I mean... The, Psalms and Isaiah aren't exactly my specialty. I don't know, I don't know what this is going to be like. And so I was quite nervous going into it. We got there and I met Dr. Ortland in the initial greeting. He was very warm. He's 71 years old. Met he and his wife, Jan. And it was just, it was, you know, just cool to be there, kind of surreal to get to meet this guy. We go to sit down in the class, and I, I gotta be honest with you, within five minutes, all of my fear and anxiety was gone. Because what I saw was not some pretentious, high-minded, better-than-you, know-it-all kind of a guy. What I saw was a humble man who was wanting to do nothing but encourage, build up, and refresh those of us that were there. It was incredible. Right from the beginning, it was just like, oh, wow, this is going to be nothing like I thought it was. For four days, he poured into us. For four days... He encouraged us. For four days, he built us up. I gotta tell you, coming out of that, it was the most life-giving week I've had in a long time. And, and, and I was just thinking, what is it? What made this so significant, just being around him? I mean, guys, he, he's, I walked up to his desk. I, I, he had his desk in there, and I, uh, we were all around these tables in a circle, and I happened to walk up. I was asking him a question. He's got, I got my Bible at my desk and some papers and some things and a notebook, and I'm walking up there, and he's got his Bible, both a Bible in English and a Hebrew Bible there that he could just you know, occasionally read from in Hebrew if he wants to. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing here with this guy? But for the whole week, he would just build us up. I, I can't tell you how many times when we would offer an insight about a particular psalm or a particular text, he would just be like, wow, wait, I, I've, I've never seen that before. Thank you for sharing. It was, it was incredible just to be with him. And at the end of the week, I found myself just thinking, what was it? I felt so charged up. I felt so refreshed. I felt built up. What was it about this man? What was the secret that made that week so significant? And it hit me. I was in the presence of someone who had been with Jesus. Guys, the greatest gift you will ever give yourself, more than any leadership training program, more than all the time you could spend with the latest leadership guru, a week with Tony Robbins, some time with John Maxwell, whatever it may be, the greatest gift you could ever give to yourself is to be with Jesus. It will make more difference. It will create greater change. It will have more significance in your life than all the other investment. Not saying any of those other things are bad. Just saying the greatest gift you could give yourself is to be 
with Jesus. Brothers, the greatest gift you can give your family, the greatest gift you could give your wife, the greatest gift you could give your children, the greatest gift you could give your your siblings, your brothers and sisters, the greatest gift you could give your small group, the greatest gift you could give those who are closest to you, your friends, the people you care about the most, the greatest gift you could give them is not financial security, it's not that dream home your wife has always wanted, it's not exotic vacations, making memories for a lifetime that your family will never forget, it's not even men taking your family to church every single week. Wonderful as that is, I'm not downplaying that. The greatest gift you can give to your family is you spending time with Jesus. It's the greatest gift. Men, the greatest gift I can give you as your pastor, greater than the best sermons that I could preach, greater than an incredible study experience and all the degrees in the world and all the training, even more than being there for you in your moment of crisis, the greatest gift I can give you is for me to stay deeply and intimately connected to Jesus. Men, that's where your power comes from. That's where your strength comes from. Everything good in your life will flow out of your relationship to Jesus. It all starts there. Jesus said this in John 15. Let's look at it together. He said this, John 15, 4 and 5, abide in me. What does it mean to abide in me? To abide in Jesus means to live a life saturated with his presence. That there's never anywhere you go, never anything that you do, never any relationship that you enter into where you're not intimately aware of Jesus, his presence, his his desire for you, what he wants for you, what he's doing in you. To live a life where you're saturated with his presence is what it means to abide in him. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Look at this last sentence here. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now here's a question. Do you really believe that? I mean, really? Do you live like that's true? How how many of us are living lives where we believe in Jesus, but we're not abiding in Jesus? He gets kind of a a nod, a glance, oh yeah, I forgot, let me pray. But he's not our focus. I, I love how John said it, that 2%. He's not the highest priority, not the deepest focus. One of the best decisions, maybe the best decision I have ever made as a pastor was hiring Brian Job. I mean, you guys know Brian? He's an amazing man. And uh, what a leader. He's not here tonight. He's coming back from a, a, a leadership training for himself this week, but he'll be here tomorrow. But man, what an incredible leader. Brian can run circles around me as a leader, and I'm so thankful. Honestly, it was on a Holy Spirit nudge. We were on a ski trip together. I'd known that the Lord was asking me to ask him to come into ministry. He'd had a 20-plus year, very successful 20-plus year career in oil and gas, and um, man, I just knew that the Lord was asking me to bring him onto the team, and I didn't exactly know what that looked like. He didn't exactly know what that looked like, but I asked him. He prayed about it over weeks, decided to, and actually, initially it started as as a volunteer role, but eventually what happened was the Lord led him to step away from a very lucrative oil and gas career to step into full time ministry. 
and has made an incredible difference at Church on the Move, has made me a better leader and just, just an amazing man. But one of the things that I've learned from him is being around him is he, he has this kind of thing that he does where when we get in meetings or we kind of, and I, 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 you know, I'm a, I'm a typical point leader. I kind of get sidetracked. I got a lot of ideas, this and that. And one of the things that Brian is always talking about is having us focus on the right things. And he'll say that a lot. I, I, I just kind of feel like, you know, that meeting wasn't the greatest. We, we weren't focused on the right things. And I'm, man, the first few times, like the first few months of him saying that, I wanted to punch him in the face. What are you talking about? I'm the pastor, man. I, I know what we should be focusing on. But I, 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 in humility, I, I, I kept myself in check. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to listen. I want to try to learn. And slowly he was like, here, here it is. And help me see. These are the things that will make the biggest difference. Sometimes, by the way, and this is just for free, it takes an outsider to help you see your blind spots. Somebody who hasn't been as close to you for a while that can kind of come in and go, hey, you know, have you noticed this is a little bit weird or this is a little bit off? And, and so Brian's talking about focusing on the right things. And one of his, his phrases that he says a lot is, guys, I just, if we're focusing on the wrong things, guys, we're just wasting our time. And then fill in the blank. If we just keep doing this, we're just wasting our time. I can't tell you how many times some idea I had was something that was just going to be wasting our time if we did it, because we were focused on the wrong things. Gosh, I wonder how many of us are living lives focused on the wrong things. It's not that your business is bad or your career is bad or even that that hobby is bad, that dream is bad. It's not that any of it, maybe some of it is, but most of it probably isn't bad. It's just that it's out of order. Our focus, our abiding is in the wrong place. We're abiding in our career. We're abiding in success. We're not abiding in Jesus. And guys, that's the source. Jesus is the source for everything good that's gonna flow out of our lives. Jesus said it, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what I love about this story with Peter and John. You read the whole story, you gotta read it sometime. Acts three and four, what you'll see is over and over again, everything, literally everything, that Peter and John did. They give credit to Jesus. It was Jesus who did it. Jesus was the one who did the miracle. Jesus was the one who gave them the boldness. Jesus was the one who gave them the message that they preached. Jesus did everything. You know what I love about this story? It, it says there in Acts 4.13, it says that these were unschooled. They recognized that these guys were unschooled and ordinary men. The translators were being kind. Those words in Greek, that first word, unschooled, is agramatos. You can kind of hear the English word for grammar in there. It just basically means illiterate. The other word, idiotes. <laughs> Egramatos idiotes. That's who these men were. Unschooled, illiterate idiots. But they took note that they had been with Jesus. The most significant thing about them the most incredible thing about them, the most amazing thing about them wasn't anything in and of themselves. It was the fact that they were connected to Jesus. Quick survey. How many guys in the room do you have some, either you yourself or someone you're closely connected to, maybe a brother, uncle, dad, grandfather, someone in your kind of close circle has a name, Peter or John? Just raise your hand. How many of you guys have somebody like that? Just hold it up high. There's a lot of hands going up. This is amazing. Why is it that after 2,000 years, people are still naming their sons Peter and John? Jewish names from 2,000 years ago. Notice, we're not naming our kids ancient Roman names like Julius, Titus, any of these types of names. Why? Because the Roman Empire is dead, but Jesus is still living and Peter and John's connection to Jesus is something that people still take seriously. It was their connection to Jesus that made the difference. And this is what it is for us, guys. If we're going to do anything of significance, if we're going to have a life of meaning and impact, it's going to come because of your connection to Jesus. Sky Jatani wrote a book, and it's kind of an odd name if you're wondering, that's a guy's name. Sky, S-K-Y-E, Jatani, J-A-T-H-A-N-I, wrote a book called With. And in it, he describes kind of five different ways that 
Historically, or down through the centuries, mankind has related to God. The, the first description that he gives, or first way that he talks about people relating to God was life under God. And this was the way that many ancient people viewed God or the gods. The idea was that I, if I behave well enough, if I do exactly what the gods or God wants me to do, then he'll bless me. He'll give me what it is that I want. You can envision an ancient warrior doing a rain dance or or someone doing a war dance, right, that would kind of maybe summon or curry the God's favor. This was the idea, that if I perform for you, then you'll be inclined to bless me in return. It's an ancient practice, but there's a lot of modern people still living this exact way. Their belief is that if I obey, if I'm good enough, if I keep the rules, if I read scripture, if I go to church, if I pray, if I have enough faith, God is bound to give me what it is that I'm asking for. The problem with this view, even though we call it life under God, one, it means that you're kind of constantly climbing constantly searching, trying to get God's approval and favor. But the other problem with this view is actually, while it looks like life under God, it's actually life over God because I perform and make God then perform in my service. The second way that he describes the way people have often related to God is what he calls life over God. This really emerged out of the enlightenment as Mankind kind of started to get an idea of how the universe worked, how the natural laws governed things. People no longer saw the world as being run exactly by cosmic forces like they used to. That was the way ancient people viewed the world. If it didn't rain, it was because God had closed up the sky. But now we start to understand gravity and physics and weather patterns and mathematics and medicine and all of this explosion of knowledge And it was a good thing. This is not a bad thing. And many of these thinkers that came out of the Enlightenment, many of them still retained their belief in God. They just now saw that the world or the universe operated on natural laws, principles. The idea of living a life over God then is to reduce God to a set of techniques, tips, practices, and principles. And for a lot of people, this is a very comfortable view of God. We don't really have a real relationship with God like a friend. We know tips or rules or practices for godly living. The idea is I'm meant to live according to God's way. Not a bad thing. God does have a particular way that he wants you to live. But make no mistake about it. God's desire is for a greater relationship with you than just to understand him like a a shop manual. Sometimes you'll hear people give the acronym for Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. This is a great view of life over God. The Bible, friends, is much more than an instruction manual. It is the revelation of the very nature and personality of God himself. It's a much deeper book than just something containing a bunch of principles and practices that we're meant to pull out of and extract and lessons for our daily life. Not the worst thing to pull lessons out of the scripture, just meaning it's, it's insufficient. The third way that he describes uh, people's relationship to God is, is uh, life from God. Life from God. And what it means to live a life from God is to try to get him on your side, to do what exactly it is that you want him to do. It's a a way of, of, of praying, a way of thinking, a way of getting God to give you what it is that you want. This really comes out of the, what I call kind of the the Philippians 4.13 mindset, where you hear people use that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, Great verse, just often misquoted. And often how we use it is what it means is that I'm gonna do something great and God's gonna support me in my efforts to do it. I'm gonna win the championship. We're gonna win the race. We're gonna do this and God's gonna help me do it. And this is the idea. I'm going to build this business. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Again, this idea is that God really just exists to give me what I want. 
His whole, his whole nature, his whole being is just around giving me the things that I desire. And what happens when we, when we view God through this lens is we reduce a certain aspect of his character, which is true, that God is a God who wants to bless you, that God is a God who is for you. That's true, but what we do is we reduce God into only a God who wants to bless you and only a God who is for you. And when we do this, we make God a caricature of his true self and we miss who he really is. This is what it is to live a life from God. And a a lot of people, in fact, this is a really common view today. They have a really hard time with the idea of God being a God of justice or judgment or telling them no or asking them to repent. We don't like the ideas of sin and hell and judgment. We just want a God of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And guys, God is a God of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, but he's also a king. And there's also a judgment day coming. And we're also gonna have to stand before him and give an account for the way that we lived our lives. God does not exist for me. I exist for God. So life Under God, life over God, life from God. This fourth one threw me off the most when I read this. Life for God. When I hit this one, I thought, okay, here we go. This is the right one. This is the way that we ought to live. But man, when I read this, it it, it hit me deeply. To live a life for God is to reduce our relationship to God to nothing more than mission. Nothing more than what he wants us to accomplish. Make no mistake about it, men. God has a mission and a purpose for your life. Absolutely, 100% to the core of my being, believe that. I believe every single one of you in this room have a ministry. Whether you're ever in full-time ministry or not, I believe you have a ministry. But to live a life for God makes my relationship with God all about the mission and not about the relationship. Have you ever wondered how is it that a pastor or a leader can be used by God in so many amazing, maybe even miraculous, incredible ways, and then one day you find out that behind all of that, behind the scenes for years and years and years was a hidden sin or addiction. Have you you heard what's happened with Ravi Zacharias? Did you hear about this? It's tragic. Guys, I I remember listening to Ravi. I remember listening to his lectures. I gave to his ministry thinking this man is doing a great work going into these secular arenas and, and, and having intelligent conversation on college campuses with young people and pointing them to Jesus and to find out the, the, the gross abuse that was happening behind the scenes for years. And you ask yourself, how is this possible? We've, that becomes possible. Let me tell you how that happens. It becomes possible when you substitute a relationship with God for a mission. The mission matters, but we dare not substitute mission for relationship. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Look at this. He said this, many, that ought to scare the pants off every guy in this room. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, what? I never knew you. We didn't have a relationship. You did all of this work for me. Guys, you can spend a lifetime doing work for Jesus and never really encounter him for yourself. You were not meant to live a life under God, over God, from God, or even for God. You were made, you were created, you were designed to live a life with God. The story of scripture from beginning to end, is about a God in search of a people, a God who wanted to dwell with mankind. That was the whole idea of the garden, 
is that God would come and dwell with Adam and Eve, and then sin broke that. And so all through scripture, what you're seeing is God trying to get back to where he can dwell with mankind. That's why he created the tabernacle. That's why he created the temple. That's why you hear about the holy of holies. That was the idea that God would dwell with mankind. Friends, that's why Jesus came, to dwell with mankind, so that he could be in us and we could be in him. God's heart is to dwell with you. Think about that for a second. The creator, I mean, this this blows my mind. The creator of the universe wants nothing more than to be in relationship with me. Does he have a mission for me? You bet. Does he want to bless me? You bet. Does he need me to live and act and behave in a certain way? You bet. Does he give me certain principles and rules that I had to live by? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. You bet. But above all of that, he just wants me. He just wants you. He wants to be in relationship with you. I love this quote from John Piper. Don't agree with everything John Piper says, but I love this quote from John Piper. He said this, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. Stop and think about this for a second. If you can imagine a heaven where all your wildest dreams come true and God doesn't necessarily need to be there, you have not envisioned heaven. You have envisioned hell. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the book, The Great Divorce, do you know what his concept of hell was? A place where people could have anything that they wanted apart from God. They could just think it and it was there. And it was a world filled with just hollow, empty, empty buildings, burned out dreams. No one, our, our lusts, our desires are insatiable. God's desire when he's bringing us to heaven is not to get us to a place where we could fly and walk through walls and have the greatest music and hang out with our friends. All of that's there. But the main thing about it is that we get to be with God. The whole idea is that we're with him. Guys, I'm driving this point home over and over and over again because the greatest thing you can do in your life is to stay connected to Jesus. The greatest gift you can give to your family is to stay connected to Jesus because that's where the power is. That's where the significance is. That's where anything and everything that you'll ever do in your life that will last, that will leave a legacy, that will matter at all, will all flow out of you abiding in Jesus. What could happen? What could you be? What kind of man could you be? What could happen in your family? What could happen with your marriage, men, if we allowed Jesus in right here to abide with us? We abide in him and he begins to transform us, to turn us into the image of himself. We become more like the one that we're with. They took the one that we've been with. We They took note that they had been with Jesus. What happens when you're with Jesus? I want to give you three thoughts, and we'll close with this. Three ideas about what happens when you're with Jesus. The first thing is this, and we see this from this text, that he gives you a supernatural boldness. Did you notice this this, uh, word here in the... Verse 13, it says, when they saw the courage or the boldness, in fact, I think we've got this verse, put it back up again. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were unschooled and common men. They were astonished at their boldness. The word boldness in Greek carries with it the idea of, of kind of a, two things really, it's interesting. It carries with it the idea of, it's a political word actually. And it has with it the idea of a kind of a freedom of speech aspect. The idea is that they were bold enough to say what needed to be said. Guys, if we're going to be the men I think God's called us to be in this time, in this world, in this generation, we're going to need some men who are willing to step up and say the truth even when it makes them unpopular. We're going to need a supernatural boldness. 
to say what needs to be said. I'm not talking about Facebook ranting. I'm talking about... (laughs) I'm talking about having the wisdom to know when to keep silent and the courage to know when to stand up and speak when necessary. Both of those are, are, are needed. And we need men in this time to stand up and say, guys, I get it, culture's headed that way. We're not going that way. We're going this way. We're following Jesus. Would you come with me? Who will boldly and gently, not with a condescending, judgmental attitude like what's wrong with you, but with an invitational uh, love and a gentle spirit that says, no, come on with me. There's a better way. Let me show it to you. I, I, I saw this quote from Jordan Peterson a while back. I don't know if any of y'all know Jordan Peterson or listen to him. He's, he's got some pretty interesting ideas from time to time, and I like listening to him every now and again. And he said this, and I thought this was so good. He said, a good man is not a harmless man. A good man is a dangerous man who has it under control. Guys, I gotta tell you, the great men that I've ever been around in my life were dangerous men. I'm not talking about physically tough, though some of them were. I'm talking about there was an edge to them. You didn't just goof off in front of them. You knew you were in the presence of someone significant. Doesn't have to have a high title doesn't have to be the CEO of the company. I'm just talking about somebody that's got a little edge to them. I believe Jesus was that kind of man. Do you ever ever read through the Gospels? What you'll never find is anybody who met Jesus and just went, eh. (laughs) Jesus was sharp, wasn't he? There was an edge to Jesus. You You didn't just come with a stupid question to Jesus. You had to think about what you were gonna say because there was a bit of danger to him. You know where that sharpness comes from? It comes from focus. It comes from knowing who you are. It comes from being on mission. It comes from knowing exactly that you are who you are and where you're supposed to be. And that's the second meaning of this word for boldness. It carries with it this idea of being open, transparent. We might even say authentic. And I think God is raising up a generation, I'm so happy about this, God's raising up a generation of authentic Christian men who aren't afraid of their brokenness. In fact, they realize that their brokenness is their greatest strength. That's what we just saw with John. Did you find that it was his brokenness is what was the strength of his story? It was what, yes, seeing what God did through him, but him in his brokenness saying, this is who I was, This is what I did. This is where I've come from. But look at what God has done in me. I I think we need a generation of men who are not afraid to hide their junk, not afraid to go, like, like, I'm going to put it out there for you, and I'm going to let you see what's really going on in my life, to really know what I'm wrestling with and battling and dealing with. Because it's in those moments of honesty where God can do his best work. We need men who know who they are. Not only know who they are in and of their personality, but know who they are in Christ. Because when you know who you are in Christ, you're not trying to impress anybody else. I'm not trying to please people. I'm not trying to put on airs, trying to be who you think I ought to be. You know what's been amazing? What God's done to me in the last few years, it's been I'm grateful. The last year and a half has been, was really difficult. Obviously, it was difficult for everybody. But man, when you're a pastor, you're in a position of authority. You've got a, a platform and people want you to say this or say that. Or I wish you wouldn't have said this or I wish you wouldn't have said that. You know what God's done to me in the last year and a half? He's weaned me off of caring what all y'all think anyway. Doesn't mean I'm recklessly going to run around and start spouting off at the mouth, but I, I'm just saying, I've learned to go, you know what, Lord, I can't please everybody, and I'm done trying. I'm going to be me. I'm going to be the pastor that God's called me to be. I'm going to be the man and leader that God's called me to be. And there's a strength in that. There's a boldness in that. And men, you can have it too. It's a supernatural boldness, but it only comes from spending time and abiding in Jesus. Number two is this, he gives you a supernatural love. 
Notice what happened. They saw this guy. How many people had walked by him before that? Didn't notice. Didn't see. Peter and John saw this man. And there's a supernatural love. And and, and I know where they got it. They've been seeing it for the last three and a half years with Jesus. Think about all the miracles that they had seen performed. Think about all the blind eyes that they saw open. Think about all the ministry that they saw done. I I was watching uh, the other night. I just happened to kind of stumble into this show called The Chosen. Has anyone seen this show? It was pretty incredible. I've only seen two episodes of it of the second season. I just turned it on, and I I was so struck by this one episode was... Jesus, Jesus was only in the final scene. The whole, I don't know, 30 minutes, hour, however long it was, it was the disciples talking, and Jesus is healing people, ministering. You don't even see him. And at the very, they're talking, and they're like, how long is he gonna be? And they're like, well, you know, he's gonna stay there until the last one's gone. And at the very end of the episode, Jesus, and you see his humanity, he comes hobbling in, he's exhausted. He falls into his tent there where he's going to stay the night. And I thought, wow, that kind of love, that kind of self-giving, self-sacrificial love, how did he do that? How do you sustain a pace like that? I got to tell you, you can't do it in and of yourself. You'll run out of gas. Guys, as followers of Christ, we're not only called to love the people that we ought to love. How many of you are finding it hard enough to do that right there? Just love the people that you should love. (laughs) Me too. But we got to love the people that we don't even want to love, the people that we don't even like. Where do you find the capacity for that? It's a supernatural love. It comes from Jesus. When I'm loved by Christ, when I experience his love, his encouragement, his affirmation. Guess what? It fills me up. I can turn around and be a fountain of self-giving love for the people around me. But when I don't do that, I'm running on empty. Guys, I don't know about you. I've been there all too, all too often in the last year and a half. I found myself on the edge. I found myself in the last year and a half more easily tempted with pornography than I have been in a long, long, long time. And I thought, what is going on? I'm tired. It's easy to let the work that you're doing for God replace relationship with God. And pretty soon you find yourself doing things you never thought you would do. What's going on? I'm not being recharged. I'm not being refreshed. I'm not being replenished. It's in those places. And guys, let me tell you this. If you want to lead your team well, You want to lead your family well, you want to lead your small group well, your students well, whatever it is, your players well. I got to tell you, it all starts with you staying refreshed and encouraged. So the greatest gift you can give to your team, to the people that you're leading, is that you come in with a spirit of faith, a spirit of hope, a hopeful attitude. When you're down, when you're burnt out, when your heart is apathetic, when you've just kind of lost that 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 verve, that spirit of just like, come on, let's go do something. Like when you've lost that, you can't be the man that you need to be for the people that are looking to you. I don't know about you, but I got people looking to me. They need me to stay encouraged. They need me to stay hope-filled. Guys, that only comes from being connected to Jesus. That's in my relation. That's in my quiet time with Jesus. The third thing is this, supernatural, supernatural boldness, supernatural love, and lastly, supernatural power. When you stay connected to Jesus, friends, you become a conduit for the power of God to work. God can do amazing things through you when you're connected to him. That's what it was with Peter and John. They had been with Jesus, spent time with Jesus, and they were in a prime position for the power of God to flow through them and work. Friends, I believe, and I've been praying for you all week. I believe the power of God wants to work in your life. It may not look as miraculous in an instant like a a man who'd never walked in 40 years being raised to his feet. Maybe it looks for you like a restored marriage. 
Maybe it looks to you like new hope, new purpose, new direction. Maybe it looks to you like freedom from addiction, freedom from porn, freedom from alcohol abuse. Maybe it looks to you like surrender, laying down pride, giving that last 2%. When that happens, it's incredible. The power of God comes on the inside of you and new life, resurrection begins to awaken and God does amazing things. I can tell you, I know because I've lived it. I've experienced it. I'm not the guy that I used to be. Many of you, you've heard my story. You know how I was. You know the man that I was. Some of y'all have been around here long enough to know went from 15 years ago. You know that God's transformed me, but it wasn't in my doing. It was Jesus. That's the power of God at work. The greatest miracle that he can do in your life is to transform you, to turn you into the image of his son, Jesus. Guys, I believe he's here tonight to begin that work. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I was praying earlier today, just, Lord, what do you want to do tonight? What is it that you want to do? This isn't my night. This is your night. What is it that you want to do? I just wanted to give you, and the kind of impression that I had was just to give you a, a chance tonight, guys, to just make a commitment Some of you need to make a commitment to go all in with God. Maybe that looks like salvation for you. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to be. That's great. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but you're not spending much time with him. Your relationship has looked real different than what I've described tonight. You're not abiding in Jesus and you're ready to say, I'm serious. I'm going all in with God. I'm putting him first This is a significant weekend for me. I want, Jesus, I want relationship with you. You might not even know what it looks like. You might not even know where the first step is, but tonight you're saying, Whit, that's what I want, and I'm committing to it. If that's you and you're in the room tonight, would you just right there where you sit, be bold enough amongst your brothers just to throw your hand up and say, Whit, that's me. That's me. Hands going up all over this room. Good grief. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Here's what I want us to do. Would you just be bold enough, guys? We're in a room of brothers here. Let's do this. So everybody stand to your feet. Let's do it this way. Stand to your feet. Guys, come on out. I, I think we, we'll sing a song here in a second. We'll sing Cornerstone again if we can. If you raised your hand, would you just be bold enough to raise it again? Just throw it up. Guys, look around you. You got somebody with their hands raised. Would you just put your hands on them? I want us to just pray over each other. We're, we're a group of brothers tonight. We're just going to sing this song. I'm going to pray, actually. But I want you to pray right there. And I want you to pray a prayer of encouragement and affirmation over your brothers. Man, they're taking a step tonight to say, I want to be a, I want a relationship with Jesus. What a thing. So I want us just to right now surround these brothers, lift them up in prayer to God. Let's do that together tonight. I'll pray here, but you pray right there. Let's pray out loud. And uh, let's pray over our brothers. Heavenly Father, thank you for these men bold and courageous enough to raise their hand and say, Lord, I want relationship with you. Deep, meaningful relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would give them clear steps of direction. May they know exactly what they're supposed to do. If it's a small group, give them the courage and the connection to get into it. Father, if it's to sit down with a pastor, Help them to do that. Father, if it's having a conversation over this weekend with a brother, I pray you would lead and guide them just exactly to the right moment in Jesus' name. Father, we pray over men who are battling addiction tonight, who are harboring secret sin, who came in here with a burden. Father, we pray against it in the name of Jesus. We love our brothers. We surround them and we lift them up. But Father, we pray that this thing that has oppressed them that has beaten them down, that has lied to them and told them that they're not worthy of your presence, that they're not worthy to be called your son. We break that in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray for freedom tonight. I pray for healing tonight in Jesus' name. Healing inside and out, Father. I thank you that the work that you're beginning in them tonight, you will be faithful to complete in Jesus' mighty name. Father, I pray 
that the eyes of our understanding would be open, that you would enlighten our hearts, open our eyes to your will, to your plan, to your purpose, and to what you want for us. Father, thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. We love you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Everybody said, amen.